God bless you. Let's grab a Bible. We're going to the book of Genesis. We're going to start in Genesis. We're going to end in Revelation. So if you're keeping score at home, that is the whole Bible we're going to cover this morning. So you may want to grab one of these blue ones uh, and, uh, and follow along. Now, if you don't want to follow along, we'll put them up on the screens for you. But that, that's kind of cheating. Um, just, no, I'm just teasing. I've missed you, not that you care, but uh, the last couple of weeks I was up at, uh, at the mothership, uh, Mariner's Irvine. I was teaching up there, and then last week I was at a place called College Briefing at Forest Home, uh, speaking to hundreds of college students, uh, but there is no place like home and like being here, so I'm delighted to be back with you guys. I can tell you're delighted to see me, and uh, no, 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 I'm not fishing. I was just, I was kidding because you were giving me such lack of response. Um, uh, next week, we're going to start a series, a 10-week series on one verse of the Bible. It's going to be glorious. Week one, for God so loved the world, He gave His Son, whosoever believes shall not perish, but have eternal life. And we'll talk two weeks on eternal life. That would be 10 weeks on one verse, John 3.16. And the reason we're going to do it is because we are so familiar with that verse, it has lost its punch. So we're going to spend 10 weeks plumbing the depths of John 3.16, and I think you will be very surprised where we end up. So that starts next week. This week, Genesis to Revelation, I just thought I'd read it straight, all right? And we'll take a couple of... (laughs) Genesis 1, verse 1, page 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now, interesting Hebrew going on here. The earth was formless and empty. In Hebrew, that phrase is tohu vavohu. Yes, you've always wondered. It could be translated wild and waste. It could be translated chaos. In fact, the word for deep now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. You could translate into, into English also the word abyss. Because the Hebrew word at its root is the word chaos. So the image you're given in Genesis 1 is that God forms the heaven and the earth, but the earth is still chaotic. It's disordered. And the Spirit of God now is going to bring order out of this chaos. And literally, that's what the six days are for, right? There's separating and sifting and and darkness from light and sea from land and animals and fish and birds. I mean, there's just bringing order to what had been chaotic. As part of that ordering, uh, Genesis 1, verse 27, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created the male and female. He created them. And then what? he does after he creates the man and the woman is he gives them work to do. We know full well that God could run the universe way better than us. And yet what he says to our first parents is that you will take the earth. You will rule it. You will subdue it. And rule and subdue don't mean strip mine and pillage. It means that you will use God honoring means to to benefit humanity. You will take the this, this creation that has been given as a gift by God and you will form it and shape it in ways that honor God and benefit each other. So they were given work. God has always been interested in people who cooperate with his work in the world. 
So literally, the first two chapters of the Bible, the word that best describes the world is the word shalom. Say shalom with me. Shalom. You know this word, we translate it peace into English. But it's a much deeper word than just peace. It is an integrated wholeness and unity. It is an alignment where everything fits together exactly the way it should fit together. And shalom in Genesis 1 and 2 exists in four directions. It exists between humans and God. It exists between humans and each other. It exists between humans and creation. And it exists between humans and themselves. What I mean by that is this. There was perfect intimacy between humans and God. Would you agree? No sacrifices had to be made. No sin had to be atoned for. They were at peace with God. Not only that, they were at peace with each other. In fact, Genesis 2 ends, the man and the woman were naked and unashamed. And that nakedness isn't just sexual. It is also a picture of their intimacy with each other. No blaming, no fighting. Just perfect peace. Shalom. Not only that, but the man and the woman were at peace internally. There was no condemnation. There was no shame. There was no guilt. There was no fear. They didn't even know what these things were. And then lastly, creation itself would bend to the desires of this man and this woman. So shalom characterized the relationship with God, with each other, themselves, and with the ground. And this lasts all of two chapters. Go to Genesis 3. Now these are all familiar passages. If you've been around our community, this this whole morning is sponsored by No Duh. We've heard this before. (laughs) Yes, we have. And let us consider again its implications. Genesis 3, do not eat of the fruit of this particular tree, the Lord God said to the man, to the woman. The man and the woman in turn say, we will eat of the fruit of this tree. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, verse 7, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from him. The Lord God called to the man, where are you? Now, God knows, obviously. But the man answered, and this is the first I statement in the entire Bible. The man and the woman until this point had been spoken of as a united, a twosome that had now become one. First I statements, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And then God says, who told you you were naked? Did you eat of the fruit of the tree? The man says, classic, verse 12, the woman you put here with me, it was her fault. (laughs) So God goes to the woman, did you eat? Well, it was the talking snake's fault. And so the blame game kind of goes on. Jump down to verse 17. God says to the man, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. Now, what we've just read is the disruption of everything God created in Genesis 1 and 2, right? There's shalom between human beings and God, and now they hide from him. There was shalom between human beings and each other, and now they're arguing and blaming each other. There was shalom between the human beings and the ground, and now the ground is cursed, and it will resist the human being's efforts to tame it. There was shalom 
between the man and the woman and themselves. But now there's fear and hiding and shame and sin. And so literally, the picture we get is if this is shalom, the picture you get is of a whole bunch of cracking. There are cracks in our relationship with God. There are cracks in our relationship with each other. There are cracks in how we see ourselves look out in the front row. There are cracks even now among creation. And so what instead of a perfect, organic, united, shalom-filled world, now you have fractures and divisions and fissures everywhere. No longer are we at peace with God. No longer are we reconciled to Him or His purposes. No longer are we born into a state of intimacy with each other. We're now born into rebellion and distrust. No longer do we walk through our our lives filled with hope and joy and peace. Instead, we're filled with regret and shame and desires that seem uncontrollable. And creation itself groans. I know, I was trying to keep you awake with all that smashing. Creation itself groans now under the weight of human sin. So that's the picture we're given of a God who brought order out of chaos, but of a rebellious humanity who reintroduced chaos into God's ordered world. Are you with me so far? So what does God do in response? Does he stay away? No, of course not. He dives in to put it back together. And he does it using People, go to Genesis 12. We always go here. Again, sponsored by the very obvious points we always make this morning. Genesis chapter 12. Of all the ways that God could repair the fractured world, he decides to do it through people. Which add, they add to the fracturing usually. Would you agree? And, and, and God knows this and yet still chooses cooperative participants and the outworking of something the Jews call tikkun olam, the repair of the world. That phrase, to me, is so incredibly powerful because it pictures a world broken and fractured and a God who is seeking to repair it. And how does God repair? Through people. So he calls a man named Abram. And in verse 2 says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. None of these promises are just for you. They're to pass through you. And he says, I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. The idea is that God would now begin the process of repairing and restoring shalom through the obedience of one man who will be built into a great nation. And from that nation will come a blessing for the whole world. Of all the ways that God could repair it, don't you think he'd do a better job by himself? Absolutely. Could he have done a better job running the universe in the first place without us? Absolutely. But in every step along the way, he's looking for a people. Go to Exodus 19. God gathers this tribe of Israelites generations later. He calls them out of slavery. Did I say slavery? I meant slavery. Slavery? (laughs) Where am I going? Exodus 19. And he gives them a job description. Verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings. 
and I brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you, Israel, will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What's the job of a priest? To represent the God they serve and to serve as an intermediary between that God and the rest of humanity. Literally, Israel was to be the priesthood of the entire earth. So God calls them out of slavery and blesses them so they will be a blessing to everybody else. Right? Their job description was to put God on display. So that literally, I mean, this is how practical it gets. So God gives them all of these commandments for, and he gives them to them for this purpose, not only their benefit, but so that people would see how great it is to live under the leadership of God and not their own leadership. That was the purpose. That was the job description. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 5. So God gives them commandments and decrees and laws. And we think, oh, bad God. He just wants to keep us from having fun. Bless you. You're welcome. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 31. He says to Moses, You are to stay here with me so that I may give you all the commands, decrees, and laws. You are to teach the Israelites to follow. Now, the word for commands is the word mitzvod. And it literally means the commands of God. There are 613 of these in the Old Testament. And you have to understand, they fall under two categories. Those that promote justice and those that promote mercy. God's desire, okay, are you tracking? Is anyone tracking with me right now? Not at all. Okay, so let me do this again. Genesis 1 and 2, shalom, right? Organic unity between in all of these different dimensions. All of that's violated in Genesis 3. So what God does is he calls a people out of human history to join with him in the repairing of all of this. And central to their work are these commands called mitzvot that were acts of justice or acts of charity. And that literally they were to put God on display so that the nations would be compelled to worship the God of Israel, the one living God, by how well it looked to live under the rulership of that God. Are you tracking with me now? Can you hear me? Good. Now, go to Matthew chapter 5. DeVries, what are you saying over there? Are you trying to guess where I'm going? You are, aren't you? You just leaned over to your sweetie and said, I know where he's going. Or I know where he got this. Don't, DeVries, don't look at me. Look at me. I just busted you, didn't I? Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. So let me ask you a question. Has the job description changed since the time that Jesus showed up? Has the job description changed? Not at all. The same job description given to Israel is now given to us. So Matthew 5, verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your what? Your good deeds. Why? So that they would glorify your Father in heaven. 
So God evidently is still looking for people who have white handkerchiefs. He's looking for people who are going to put him on display through the very practical ways they live their lives. Go, if you would, to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. So, what does it look like to repair the world? Well, here's some very practical examples. Ephesians chapter 2. We looked at this passage a couple of months ago. Ephesians 2, verse 8. Now, when I first became a Christian, this was the first verse I had to memorize. Okay, because it kind of is the essence of what it means to believe. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, not by mitzvot, not by good deeds, so that no one can boast. So the idea is simply this. Jesus comes into the world and he's offering grace. Unlike all the other religious systems or viewpoints on planet earth, there is grace. All you do is receive it. All you do is learn to accept it, to believe it, to trust it. It is a gift of God to us. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. You don't accomplish this list of religious deeds to get it. The Bible is so emphatically clear. It is received as a gift. But I always just ended the verse right there. I mean, it's just like, sweet, okay, so we're saved. Hallelujah! It is by grace, I don't have to do anything. Great! But Paul doesn't end his thought right there. Verse 10. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do what? Good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Though no one ever told me that part. They just stopped at it. Hey, you're saved. Not by works. But no one ever told me we're not saved by works, but we're saved for them. Like, it's not just a ticket to heaven kind of deal where you have a mental transaction with some deity up in heaven where you say, okay, well, I'm sorry for all that I've done bad, and then I get a ticket to heaven. Hallelujah. You're actually rescued in order to become rescuers of others. You're actually healed to become healers of others. You're actually invited into the very thing that you've received. You're invited now to pass that on. Same as Abram. You've been blessed, now be a blessing. And we don't do it to earn God's favor. We do it because we already have it. Right? We don't do it to say, man, look at me, God. How great is this? We do it because we've already tasted His goodness and His mercy. There's no condemnation. We could live our lives however we want to, but we recognize the life that is really life is actually found under His leadership. Swapping out our agendas for His agendas. And His agenda? He desires everyone everywhere to come to the knowledge of the God who saves and to begin to put the world back together. He's always looked for cooperative participants who don't just passively spectate once they've received grace, but they now, empowered by grace and still under grace, given eternal life and God's Spirit in them, go out as agents of this repairing of the world. We're not saved by our works, but we're saved for them. In other words, if you take this seriously, You'll go to work or school tomorrow. 
you'll have a whole bunch of conversations. You'll drive a certain kind of way on our freeways. You will consume a certain, you'll consume a certain way. If you're at a restaurant, you'll treat servers a certain kind of way. You'll respond to emails a certain kind of way, or phone calls a certain kind of way, or classmates a certain kind of way, or spouses a certain kind of way. And the question that's asked, are you adding to the pain and the chaos, or are you partnering with God even in those mundane, silly things to actually bring repair? To the world. I mean, the image is literally that you just have little bits and pieces. And that God is working to make everything new. And so you get to play a part. I mean, that's the image. Go, if you would, to the book of Colossians. You didn't see that one coming, DeVries. You didn't see Colossians coming. Jamie, did he? Man. See, dudes that have masters in ancient Jewish literature... They get cocky. (laughs) Colossians chapter 1. Verse 19. Now I realize we're covering massive amounts of territory. Right? And if you're lost, you are not alone. But the central image, I want you to keep in mind that pot and how it's fractured. What's God doing in the world? He's putting it back together. And you're invited to play. That's the point. Colossians 1, verse 19. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in Jesus. And through Jesus to reconcile to himself, what? All things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now, do we receive forgiveness because of the sacrifice of Jesus? Awesome. Blue room, not a lot. Brown room, much more interested. Yes, just to, yes, of course. Do we receive only forgiveness at the cross? Not according to this verse. God's doing a bigger work. Is forgiveness absolutely critical and central? Of course. And if that's all we received, that's, all, that's more than we'd ever deserve. But the scriptures like this, and there are many others, teach that God is in the process of restoring all four dimensions of what's been broken. In other words, Paul says even creation groans, awaiting redemption. And the end of the story is that God makes even a new earth. So all of a sudden now, that dimension of shalom is restored. What about peace with God? Do we have it in Christ? Absolutely. And what about peace with each other? The Bible makes such a big deal that in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, Republican nor Democrat, rich or poor. Every single way that humans divide themselves has now been subsumed under the Lordship of Jesus. So have you been reconciled to each other? Absolutely. Now do we live like it? No. But that doesn't change the fact that we have been. See, I want you to see that God's putting the whole thing back together. Yes, he's forgiving, hallelujah, but it's more than just that. How about internally? When passages like perfect love casts out fear, there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. 
Is God actually reintroducing shalom into your internal world? Of course He is. And so much of our journey is the journey out of fear and shame and guilt and into freedom. So what our disobedience had fractured, God is now putting back together. Would you agree? In all of its dimensions. Go to Hebrews. We're getting closer to Revelation, guys. When we hit Revelation, you'll know it's over. (laughs) Hebrews chapter 10. Is this making a little bit more sense now as we're going? Okay. I'm glad to hear that. Mike, of course, would already know where we're going. So it made sense to him before I even started speaking. Hebrews chapter 10. I'm sorry, he's a friend. He loves ancient Jewish literature like I do, and he knows who I read. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. And let us consider, why do we get together? Let us consider how we may spur one another on to love and good deeds, mitzvot. Now, I don't know about you, I need spurring every now and again. Would you agree? Like, does it come easily or naturally to forgive your enemies? Nope. How about to bless those who persecute you? Nope, doesn't come easy. Does it come easy? Does generosity come naturally for you? Not for me. How about, hey, let's remind ourselves that my selfish ambition really isn't the most important thing. That godly ambition is way better. Let's, let's spur, like literally, the idea is that we would stir each other up when we gather together to be reminded that our job is actually to show how good and real Jesus is by how we live. So it's not just that we sit and believe. Hallelujah that we believe. Hallelujah we've been saved by grace through faith and not of works. But we now are given work to do in the world. And it's not being nice. It's not about tipping well. Right? I mean, if you're, if you're thinking Oprah or American Idol kind of social justice, you're missing the glorious point. We do this in the name of Jesus, to bring glory to Jesus, to share about Jesus. We are ambassadors of the good news about Him. We're not just nice people. Right? We got lots of nice people. I don't want to give my life to be nice. That's not worth a life. I want to give my life to a revolution that is over the course of human history flipping everything upside down so that what the world thinks is greatness is actually low on how God sees greatness. And how God sees greatness is actually really low on how the world sees greatness. See, I want to be a part of something that outlasts me. I want to be a part of something that you can't simply explain as well-intentioned. I want to be a part of something supernatural. I want to be a part of something where I actually decrease and God gets bigger. So this isn't about being nice. This isn't about like little existential hits. Hey, I've done my part. I've sponsored my kid. See, this is your whole life. Every conversation, every email, every interaction. Do you bear shalom or break it? Now, none of us do this perfectly. We add to the mess. But our imperfection doesn't diminish the invitation. So why do we get together? Well, one reason is we need spurred. (laughs) Because none of this comes naturally. What comes naturally is doing what I want, when I want, how I want. 
That's the air I breathe. That's the water I swim in. It's a mixed metaphors, quite dramatically. <laughs> Go to 1 Peter. Did you see 1 Peter coming? You did. Oh, you scurvy dog. First Peter was written during the time of a man named Nero. Nero wasn't very fond of Christians. Nero, and there's a whole backstory to this. In 64 AD, Nero, uh, we, there was a big fire in Rome in a section that Nero wanted to build on. And so this fire mysteriously happened. And some historians still think Nero said it. But he needed to blame somebody else, and so he blamed Christians. And a huge persecution broke out against Christians. In fact, we have records of Nero lighting Christians on fire and staking them around his dinner parties so they would provide light. Right, I mean, a very classy guy. Or he would, he would put, cover them in wild animal skins and then set wild dogs on them. I mean, it was awful. And so Peter's writing a letter to the church in exile, a church that's no longer real welcome. And here's what he says, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among those that don't fear God that though they accuse you of doing wrong, which is, of course, what Nero had been doing, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. Go to the book of Revelation. Can you imagine being told as Christians are being burned to light dinner parties? The invitation for you is to live so well among the ungodly that even though they think you're crazy and accuse you of sin, they can't help but look at your deeds and give glory to God. Now, see, that's much different than being nice. Would you agree? Revelation chapter 2. I've often wondered, how does Jesus evaluate churches? Does Jesus care how long it takes to get into kids' ministry? Does Jesus care about how comfy the seats are? Does Jesus care about how good-looking the preacher is. <laughs> of course he does. <laughs> no, I think Jesus kind of, he's not real concerned about whether or not you were entertained or had a great experience. Because we don't do this for each other, right? I mean, ultimately, we do this for him. And he says this thing over and over in the book of Revelation to these churches he's speaking to. So chapter 2, verse 2. So this is to the church in Ephesus. He simply says, I know your deeds. Flip the page. The church in Thyatira. I know your deeds. To the church in Sardis, chapter 3. I know your deeds. To the church in Philadelphia. I know your deeds. To the church in Laodicea. I know your deeds. Some he praises. And some, he condemns. Evidently, Jesus isn't really interested in having a community of people gather once a week just to remind themselves how great it is to be them. 
Evidently, Jesus is real interested in rescuing people who then become bearers and agents of the same rescue they themselves have received in their real lives. That they would live such good lives among the unbelievers that the unbelievers would come to the conclusion that God must be real and he must be good because of how they live. Now, how are we doing in America with that job description? It is exactly our hypocrisy that drives people away. So they see our deeds and they go, really? If that's the difference Jesus makes, no thanks. This isn't a salvation issue. Well, not necessarily. But I do wonder if one of the reasons why the church is so unbelievably mediocre and hypocritical is that we've lopped off part of the job description. We've celebrated the it's by grace we've been saved, not by works part, and we've lost the but now you're saved for works part. And that actually the life that will be most meaningful, most satisfying, and most purposeful is found in abandoning your agenda for God's agenda. Because for far too long, the church of Jesus has simply been known for what we're against, right? If you're a Christian, it means you're anti-gay. It means you're anti, I don't know, Democrat. Uh, it means you're anti, you know, taxes. And I mean, literally, the list of all that we're against is pretty massive. I think it's time that we become known for what we're for rather than what we're against. Because I tell you what, I mean, as a follower of Jesus, I'm for truth and goodness and beauty. As a follower of Jesus, I'm for simplicity and generosity. I believe that the worldview of this world doesn't ultimately provide satisfaction. I actually believe that the way to freedom is through simplicity and generosity. I actually believe that reconciliation is of God no matter where it's found. I actually believe that the people of God, instead of being known for everything we're against, need to remind everybody that we're for compassion and we're for justice. And we are for everybody being treated with the dignity that is inherent in being an image bearer of the Creator God. We're against every form of racism and we are for seeing men and women, no matter what tribe or tongue or nation they're from, as somebody who is loved, somebody who is lost, and somebody who is welcome to the revolution. There is dignity everywhere. That's what we're for. We're for a God who doesn't stay away from the chaos but enters in. And we're for a God who says no matter who you are, what you've done, where you've came from, what you call yourself, you have a place at his table. You are welcome to be used by him. That is what we're for. And it has been far too long since those that are opposed to God, convinced religion is a figment of the human imagination, it has been far too long that they've been confronted with the simple reality that the people of God actually have tasted and lived the reality of the Lord Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus that is still at work in this world. It has been far too long since people have looked at a church and said, they're not that good. But there's something happening that I simply can't explain. No one's that good. Don't you hunger for that? I mean, that's worth a life. Wouldn't you agree? See, I'm going to take some of this pottery 
And I'm just going to carry it around. Just this week. And I'm just going to, whenever I touch it, I'm just going to be reminded of the simple choice I have in everything. Am I an ambassador of shalom or a violator of it? And I, and I don't feel condemned when I ask that question because I'm horribly imperfect. Would I feel those inspired when I ask that question? Because I don't want to be nice. I want to be a revolutionary. I want to be an insurrectionist. I want to be an ambassador of another world. And so that's the invitation this morning, brothers and sisters. No matter where you find yourself, would you stand up with me? Yeah, we were preaching a little bit. Okay, look at the person next to you and say, I survived. Okay, that was a little too victorious. Now, would you close your eyes? A couple of thoughts, and we're going to worship together. Thought number one. Are you here this morning needing repair yourself? I do believe that there are times we are pressed with life circumstance or something that's happened in our past or brokenness that we can't seem to get rid of. And I think it fully and utterly and absolutely appropriate for the people of God to cry out to their God for repair and healing and deliverance. But for me, I always want to do that just for my own sake. And maybe this morning we could cry out a little differently. Maybe we could say, God, would you, would you bring wholeness and shalom in me for the sake of my family? Or for the sake of my work? For the sake of my classmates? I mean, maybe, maybe God's desiring to do great things, but so often we just want them for ourselves. Maybe we should ask, God, would you do great things so that other people could see how great you are? And so maybe you're here and you're just in need of repair and we just want to bless the hunger and the thirst for that. Maybe you're here this morning and you're like me. It's just way too easy to seek out my own comfort and security and follow my own desires and ambitions and maybe there's just a bit of waking up we need to do. Just to be reminded yet again of how good our God is and what he invites us into now that we're his. And so would you just take a moment of quiet? Would you bring yourself before God and ask him what he asks of you?